I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's really lovely for us all to be here and uh, to welcome Ocean to this country and to this bookshop. And you are so welcome. And this collection of poems was so welcome to all of us that have read it and people that haven't. You just have an extraordinary treat in store. We had a lovely conversation downstairs one of the things Ocean was saying was that um, he is very interested in and feels a part of the oral tradition, and that reading poems out loud is a thing that still makes him nervous, but that is very important. And so we thought it would be the most wonderful thing if you would read to us for a little while at your own leisure. We'll just relax. Great. Um, uh, can you hear me okay? Is this a good volume? Maybe I, I'll hold it. Uh, but you won't be relaxed then. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, you want me to hold it? No, it's okay. I got it. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. My voice is so small. Um, um, but uh, thank you, um, everyone, for being here. Uh, thank you, Max. And uh, thank you to uh, the great people at CAPE. There are only... Um, there's only one name on a book, unfortunately, but in reality there's always a group of people dedicated to language and literature and the imagination, um, working diligently behind it through and through, um, through every aspect. And uh, I want to just take a moment to thank Robin Robertson um, and uh, Mia Kibble-Smith um, and Joe Pickering, and the rest of the Jonathan Cape Random House team um, for believing in it and uh, for making it um, more beautiful than than uh, I could imagine. There are, a, you know, this this book came in a moment, um, in a in a difficult moment for my country in the U.S. Um, and I I can't speak for life uh, here. But uh, it's been quite uh, terrifying there. Um, but despite all that, um, I still am optimistic, perhaps naively so. Um, that's yet to be determined. Um, but the past year and the past few months specifically in our political climate has 
allowed me to dispel the notion of a great capital H hope, um, but in its stead uh, revealed a smaller hope, more specific and tangible. Um, and it's moments like this uh, that feels hopeful to me, small, ephemeral, where you write a book, um, this strange little book, and it moves um, from one border to another, from one country to another, at a time where people are building walls um, to divide us. So I just want to say thank you for your presence, for your attention, and for being here to support this lovely bookshop and uh, and for supporting language above all. Thank you. Uh, I'll read a little bit and then hopefully we can talk. Sorry, I have reading glasses and then life glasses. <laughs> a lot of the collection attempts to navigate the notion of fatherhood, father figures, both real and mythological. And um, this poem is in the voice of Telemachus, who of course is Odysseus's son in the Iliad. Telemachus, like any good son, I pull my father out of the water, drag him by his hair, through white sand, his knuckles carving a trail the waves rush in to erase. Because the city beyond the shore is no longer where we left it. Because the bombed cathedral is now a cathedral of trees. I kneel beside him to see how far I might sink. Do you know who I am, Ba? But the answer never comes. The answer is the bullet hole in his back, brimming with seawater. He is so still. I think He could be anyone's father, found the way a green bottle might appear at a boy's feet, containing a year he has never touched. I touch his ears. No use. I turn him over. To face it, the cathedral in his sea-black eyes. The face, not mine, but one I will wear to kiss all my lovers goodnight. The way I seal my father's lips with my own and begin this faithful work of drowning. This next poem is an attempt to rewrite, um, you know, a lot of the project, I suppose, I didn't want to write as a witness um, of history, 
particularly history I did not live through. But I wanted to, in the tradition, I suppose, of Homer, who wrote nearly 400 years after the Trojan War, of creating my own mythology of the history I came from. And uh, this is uh, an attempt to do that. In Sa- During the fall of Saigon in 1975, the American radio station played a coded message for American personnel to evacuate the city. And it was Irving Berlin's White Christmas. So they played that on the radio. And as you can imagine, it was utter chaos in the midst of this song. When my grandmother told me this story as a child, she said, you know, Saigon fell during the snow song. And I didn't, I couldn't imagine what that meant. And I imagined it was a blizzard. Uh, it, it was falling in a blizzard. And in my whole life, I thought Saigon collapsed during a blizzard, not knowing that it's a trop- Vietnam is a tropical country. Um, but anyways, th- this is my, w- this poem was my opportunity to create that mythology. And the, the lyrics of the Irving Berlin's White Christmas is threaded throughout. Obad with Burning City. Milk flower petals in the street like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. He fills a teacup with champagne, brings it to her lips. Open, he says. She opens. Outside, a soldier spits out his cigarette as footsteps fill the square like stones fallen from the sky. May all your Christmases be white as the traffic guard unstraps his holster, his fingers running the hem of her white dress, a single candle, their shadows, two wicks. A military truck speeds through the intersection, children inside, a bicycle hurled through a store window when the dust rises, a black dog lies panting in the road, its hind legs crushed into the shine of a white Christmas. On the bedstand, a sprig of magnolia expands like a secret heard for the first time. The treetops glisten and children listen. The chief of police face down in a pool of Coca-Cola. The song moving through the city like a widow. A white, a white. I'm dreaming of a curtain of snow falling from her shoulders, snow scraping against the window, snow shredded with gunfire, red sky, snow on the tanks rolling over the city walls, a helicopter lifting the living just out of reach, the city so white it is ready for ink. The radio saying, run, run, run. Milk flower petals on a black dog like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. She is saying something neither of them can hear. The hotel rocks beneath them, the bed a field of ice. Don't worry, he says, as the first shell flashes their faces 
My brothers have won the war. And tomorrow, the lights go out. I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming to hear sleigh bells in the snow. In the square below, a nun on fire runs silently toward her God. Open, he says. She opens. Um, just two more poems. This is uh, one of the longer pieces in the book. Um, I think uh, as, a, as a queer person growing up in America, um, I was trying to navigate what it means to be a queer body in the American space and how sometimes some of us don't make it in that space um, and how the, the journal or the diary becomes this vital space where we get to create our own mirror um, and where we can speak perhaps more fully than we do even to our family and loved ones. And I wanted to honor that form, the notebook, the diary. Um, and I wanted to, to insist that that form is equally as worthy of art and literature as, say, the sonnet, Sestina, Hustle, Vignelle, etc. So this poem is in a, a series of notebook entries. And I'll pause a bit in between the entries. Notebook Fragments A scar's width of warmth On a worn man's neck That's all I wanted to be Sometimes I ask for too much Just to feel my mouth overflow Discovery my longest pubic hair is 1.2 inches. Good or bad? 7.18 a.m. Kevin overdosed last night. His sister left a message, couldn't listen to all of it. That makes three this year. I promise to stop soon. Spilled orange juice all over the table this morning. Sudden sunlight I couldn't wipe away. All through the night, my hands were daylight. Woke at 1 a.m. and, for no reason, ran through Duffy's cornfield. Boxers only, corn was dry, I sounded like a fire. For no reason. Grandma said in the war they would grab a baby, a soldier, at each ankle and pull, just like that. It's finally spring. Daffodils everywhere, just like that. There are over 13,000 unidentified body parts from the World Trade Center being stored in an underground repository in New York City. Good or bad? Shouldn't heaven be super heavy by now? 
maybe the rain is sweet because it falls through so much of our world. Even sweetness can scratch the throat, Grandma said. So stir the sugar well. 4.37 a.m. How come depression makes me feel more alive? Life is funny. Note to self, if a guy tells you his favorite poet is Jack Kerouac, there's a very good chance he's a douchebag. <laughs> Just personal experience. <laughs> Note to self, if Orpheus were a woman, I wouldn't be stuck down here. Why do all my books leave me empty-handed? In Vietnamese, the word for grenade is bum, from the French bum, meaning apple. Or was it American for bum? Woke up screaming with no sound, the room filling with a bluish water called dawn, went to kiss grandma on the forehead just in case. An American soldier fucked a Vietnamese farm girl. Thus, my mother exists. Thus, I exist. Thus, no bombs equals no family. No me. Yikes. 9.47 a.m. Jerked off four times already. My arm kills. My arm, like all arms, can kill. In Vietnamese, the word eggplant is grenade tomato, thus nourishment defined by extinction. I met a man tonight, a high school English teacher from the next town, a small town maybe I shouldn't have. But he had the hands of someone I used to know, someone I was used to the way they formed brief churches over the table as he searched the right words. I met a man, not you. In his room, the Bibles shook on the shelf from candlelight, his scrotum a bruised fruit. I kissed it lightly, the way one might kiss a grenade before hurling it into the night's mouth. Maybe the tongue is also a key. Yikes. I could eat you, he said, brushing my cheek with his knuckles. Some grenades explode with a vision of white flowers. Baby's breath blooming in a darkened sky across my chest. I'm going to lose it when Whitney Houston dies. I met a man. I promised to stop. A pillage village is a fine example of perfect rhyme. He said that he was white. Or maybe I was just beside myself next to him. I forgot his name by heart. I wonder what it feels like to move at the speed of thirst. 
if it's fast as lying on the kitchen floor with all the lights off. Christopher with a K. 6.24 a.m. Greyhound Station, one-way ticket to New York City, $36.75. 6.57 a.m. I love you, Mom. When the prison guards burned his manuscripts, Wing Chi Ting couldn't stop laughing. The 283 poems already inside him. Kevin, I dreamed I walked barefoot all the way to your house in the snow. Everything was the blue of smudged ink and you were still alive. There was even a light, the shade of sunrise inside your window. God must be a season, Grandma said, looking out at the blizzard, drowning her garden. My footsteps on the sidewalk were the smallest flights. Dear God, if you are a season, let it be the one I pass through to get here. Here. That's all I wanted to be. I promise. Uh, in this last poem, um, I was reading this poem called Katie by uh, Frank O'Hara, who uh, I adore perennially. Um, and in this poem, he has this line where he says, Someday I'll love Frank O'Hara. And I thought it was such a vulnerable, tender, yet courageous thing to declare. Um, and so I wrote a poem to myself called Someday I'll Love Ocean Ball. Thank you again. Ocean, don't be afraid. The end of the road is so far ahead. It is already behind us. Don't worry. Your father is only your father until one of you forgets. Like how the spine won't remember its wings, no matter how many times our knees kiss the pavement. Ocean. Are you listening? The most beautiful part of your body is wherever your mother's shadow falls. Here's the house with childhood whittled down to a single red tripwire. Don't worry. Just call it horizon and you'll never reach it. Here's today. Jump. I promise it's not a lifeboat. Here's the man whose arms are wide enough to gather your leaving. And here the moment, just after the lights go out, 
when you can still see the faint torch between his legs. How you use it again and again to find your own hands. You asked for a second chance and are given a mouth to empty out of. Don't be afraid. The gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer and failing. Ocean, ocean, get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world. Here's the room with everyone in it. Your dead friends passing through you like wind through a wind chime. Here's a desk with the gimp leg and a brick to make it last. Yes, here's a room so warm and blood close. I swear you will wake and mistake these walls for skin. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. That was extraordinary. So good to hear you read. I've deliberately not listened to you read on YouTube or anything like that. Oh, thank you. So that I could experience that. Uh, it, it is, as, as has become known about you in America, it is a singular thing to hear you read. Thank you. Um, and I loved that you the, the line in that last poem about uh, this room, all of us here in this room with the voices of the dead coming through us all. Um, Amen to that. But anyway, what I love about Jack Kerouac is... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's when I lift up my sleeve and I've got a huge Kerouac forever <laughs> tattoo. Um, there's so much I want to ask you. Um, I want to talk, if we can, briefly... Um, well, let's just talk about everything, not briefly. Um, there was an opera written here in, in the 80s, I think. Uh, someone can correct me. Um, Ian McEwan wrote the libretto. Uh-huh. And it was called um, or, or We Shall Die, uh, the, which completes the line, May We Live in Womanly Times. Mm. And it's something that's been in many of our minds recently as we face the, the prospect of uh, a bunch of babies with nuclear rockets squaring up to each other across the, the oceans. Um, and you were, and you've said this and many of your poems are about this raised by women and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your childhood with those women and what your life was like and also particularly because in an attempt to describe you as an Asian American poet and and to kind of shackle you in a certain biographical uh, space it's often ignored that that can be a celebratory thing and I'd quite like to know about the Vietnamese-ness of your early years Um, thank you for that kindness uh, in the unshackling. <laughs> um, yes, I, 
I, I, I was raised by um, my grandmother, my mother, and my aunts. Um, and I think the, uh, the valuable thing and also the most perplexing thing that I learned, that uh, at least in America, I can't speak here, but that I learned that uh, to have a fatherless home uh, is considered a broken home. Um, and I thought that was strange because I felt that um, family and nurturing was about love and that even without a father figure in my house, I was never short of love. And it didn't feel broken to me. And so I think um, when I think about how to uh, survive in this world, I think of, I think of women, right? Because the way they have to move through the world um, demands a certain consciousness of uh, safety. And, I, I, and I, it also goes back to what W.E.B. Du Bois says when he speaks of the racial double consciousness of how one sees oneself as a, a black man and also how society sees him as a black man. But I also think this is true um, for the women in my family um, where they move through uh, this world not only having to have the double consciousness in how they protect themselves but also their children. Um, and sometimes this, this manifests in very um, odd uh, ways, you know, um, but also very um, understandable ways. You know, like, for example, before I would leave for school, um, my mother would tell me, remember, you're already Vietnamese. Don't get noticed. Don't cause trouble, right? And, you know, on, on the one hand, it's this sad um, moment of otherness, right? That the mother declaring the child's otherness so that others wouldn't have to rupture it, mm -hmm. so that uh, the violence did not have to come firsthand. It was sort of this veil in, a, in, in the sense of a warning. Um, and it was coming from her life as a, a woman who suffered uh, domestic abuse you know, mm -hmm. throughout her life, um, but also as a, as a mixed-race uh, Vietnamese-American. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it was... Um, it was like my first bit of poetry, in a way, right? Um, language handed down. What does already mean before it proceeds Vietnamese, right? That, that already is the most charged mm -hmm. moment. And uh, photographically, I think Roland Bach would say the punctum, mm -hmm. right? And, and for me, that was the punctum of that mantra that I heard every day. Mm. What does it mean to be already something, mm. I'm still trying so, to figure so, that so out. If you, which a lot of these poems are reckoning with that. So if your if your otherness is already, it's and it's therefore pre-linguistic in, yeah. in some ways. Yeah. So then, just to skip through some of the biographical stuff, I've already said it's tiresome for you, but I want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You then acquire the English language, yeah. but you you do so in a con in a in a in a, in a context where it is um, to some extent as you're being gifted it, it's also being denied you. Your, your, your ease with the English language and with, particularly with poetic language is deemed as a kind of affront that you would have this a natural grace with language, right? Right, right. And that happened when you were how, how old? Uh, I must have been... Well, it happened throughout, but there was this moment when I was, when I was nine where um, 
I I was inspired by we were we were asked to to write a poem for class um, uh, as nine year olds and and I wrote this poem inspired by the speeches of Martin Luther King mm. um, because I, I grew up in Hartford and Hartford is a very tough neighborhood you know a very masculinist neighborhood and people who read were considered traitors of the lower class, which is where I came from, like this working class. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, to read is to, um, what's so good about books, right? Where do you think you're headed, right? And so it was seen as this first step out of mm-hmm. the class. Um, and so I would, I would hide in the libraries. Um, and because I, had, I struggled with reading, I would listen to tapes of uh, speeches. They had these tapes, you know, great American speeches. So I listened to JFK, um, uh, a recording, an actor reading Lincoln and Martin Luther King. Mm. And I didn't understand the context of the words, but I heard the power in the language. Mm. And I wrote a poem called If a Boy Could Dream, you know, a silly poem mm. full of flowers and stuff. Um, not knowing, you know, the context, but but uh, the, the teacher thought I plagiarized it, mm. right? Because, of course, I was such, I was so terrible with language. How could I have... Um, uh, this imagination, mm. right? And I think that was my first step that I said. Um, it was at once uh, this confrontation with the English language, but also uh, a lifeboat in a way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if the world would not hold me the way I want to be hold, then I must create my own world using my language. Mm. And there's this traditional uh, Vietnamese legend of this uh, painter uh, drawing. Uh, he, he made his painting for an emperor. It's also a Chinese legend. Yeah, I was going to say, you stole yes. it. From- <laughs> <laughs> well, they're very, the waters are very fluid, yeah. you know. Um, but, uh, you know, he failed, apparently. He, he made this painting. The emperor didn't like it, and he was going to be executed, as emperors are wont to do. Um, and then the, the the myth is that because he made it, it was so clear to him that he stepped inside the painting and escaped, right, uh, saving himself. And uh, my grandma used to tell me this legend, right, um, and I, I saw that that was what language was for me, that uh, it was a place where I came to unshackle myself. Mm. And I think specifically in poetry, um, we break the rules um, in order not to adhere to any social conventions. We break the rules hoping. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. To find something better for ourselves. I think we break the rules when we look around us and say, this is not enough. 
right? And the English language, the beautiful thing about the English language is that it grew out of this restlessness, mm-hmm. this not enoughness, mm-hmm. right? And if you and I were to speak in quote unquote original English, we would be speaking uh, in Chaucerian English, right? right? In Middle English. Um, and so the fact that we are speaking the way we are with our different accents is testimony to how malleable and how beautiful language when charged with innovation can be. Well, that charge, we were talking a bit downstairs about, about hybridity and, and juxtaposition. You had a better word for it, which was... Parataxis, I Parataxis, believe. Yeah. He's, 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 done some, he's done some study, this one. Um, but, but what I think is so addictive in reading this poem is that you go from... Do you know Ursula Rucker, the spoken word? She's a, she's a rapper in America, but she used uh-huh. to do those beautiful spoken word pieces at the beginning of Roots albums, and they were very, they were very erotic, and mm. they were very... Um, they were social documentary. They were very aggressively about domestic abuse right. and racism in America. And she would flip between the statistical and, and the erotic. Right. And that's what this book gathers its charge from as you're reading it, is that you go from the confessional to, to the lyrical. And, and, and these changes right. are... are um, that there is something molten about it. It's hot liquid moving between different vessels and, and there's a charge. But sometimes you are, you are playful in a way that is definitely to do with being a gay poet and to do with, you know, you're saying you're being othered because of your ethnicity as a child. You're also being othered because of your sexuality at a certain point. And, and the masculinity of writing poetry is something that you're pushing against, right, with writing about the body particularly. How, was that always the poetry you wrote? Or did you find that you came into yourself as a poet at around about the same time as you came into yourself and in your, in your, into your own sexuality? Are they one? Yeah. Um. I would say they are one, but I think um, I think all of that is enacted in the moment of utterance. Um, and for me, I think oftentimes when speaking of sexuality in my work, um, people would say, "Well, it's so courageous, it's so brave of you." Um, but I don't think it's it's courageous. Um, I think it's simply that my urgency to speak about something that is so seldomly spoken mm. about. That urgency simply outpaces my terror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's how the work gets done. Um, perhaps that's not the healthiest way, um, but it's just the way I've been able to articulate the mm. work. That the terror is always there, and on good days it wins. Mm. On good days the terror beats it, and I, I'm silent, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think that's sort of my praxis as a specifically as a queer poet but also as a, a writer of color um, and also a writer coming out of a space where I shouldn't have been a writer of mm-hmm. of the working class right and so in a way to be to even write about anything uh, was to betray almost everything uh, mm-hmm. around me mm-hmm. right um, and so that was my sort of permission mm. um, and of course I was reading uh, Ashbery Lorca uh, Emily Dickinson and uh, Rambo; those were my sort of totems, mm-hmm. and they were the finest um, sort of idiosyncratic rule breakers there were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had good guides, and I think I kept going back to that endless well to replenish, um, you know, my work. Mm. But then there's this collection. You had two pamphlets. This is your first collection, yeah. and so I, the bravery thing, right? I mean. 
have you seen Amy Schumer talk about bravery? No. It's really funny. So yeah. she says, yeah. you know, tonight I'm going to wear this skin-tight leather thing, and you're all going to say, how brave? <laughs> to which I'm going to say, fuck you, it's not brave. Um, but there is this bravery of writing anyway, in it from, coming from a working-class Muslim environment. Then there's the bravery of taking a form such as poetry, which is so effeminate, right. and writing about um, homosexuality, whatever it is writing about. And then there is the bravery of being an American poet and writing into a tradition that has sometimes been very hostile to newcomers right. and has sometimes been a little bit counterproductive in the way it looks over its own shoulder. Right. And you've come, at, you've come at it quite, quite square on. It would appear to be a brave gesture. Right. And that there are, it's not, it's not, you, you've, you haven't shied away from doing direct combat, as it were, with Whitman, with Dickinson, with O'Hara. And, and, and the form of the book suggests... I mean, a, 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 a guy I know in Ireland, we were communicating about this book, which, which he loved, and he wrote back saying, whenever I try and do things formally on the page that he has done, I feel fraudulent. I feel inauthentic, and I can't pull it off, and it embarrasses me. So when I'm, his question to you is, how do you do that so fearlessly, the formal innovations yeah. in the book? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm always embarrassed. Um, but... When I'm writing uh, alone, often in the wee hours of the morning, I feel like um, I get to have the final word of the day for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, the idea is to move away. That embarrassment happens in front of the social space, mm-hmm. right? One is embarrassed because one is fear of being judged, of being fraudulent, and every writer has that, including myself. But I think when... When I'm trying to write, I try to move beyond the self as an I, as an identity, um, with the trust that to write a single sentence is to embody everything that I am. Asian American, queer, dog lover. Uh, and, and Oh, you're a dog lover. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know, uh, and, and, and all the strange joys mm. and um, oddities that I possess that I don't even have a name for, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Merwin, W.S. Merwin uh, has this great line where he says, uh, to write is to push oneself um, as a thread through a fabric so that every everything that you move through is now threaded with that color, mm-hmm. right? So that you can't even choose, you can't amputate yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the line, the poetic line is that thread, and, is, and, and it resists amputation simply because it has been enacted. And, and in a way, um, to get there, it, it resists um, ideas of fraudulent, you know, this mm. idea of shame, right, mm. which is always there. But mm. again, I think the urgency mm. gets the work done despite that. Mm. Um, but yeah. And is that something you felt swell in you uh, as the workers found more readers? I don't know. I wrote this um, without that imagination that there would be any readers. You know, um, my press, uh, they said, uh, we're going to print 3,000 copies. And I got so frantic. I said, how many of these I'm going to have to buy and and put in my house, you know? Um, uh, And I got really nervous. So this has all been quite unexpected. Mm. Um, But the work was written before that. So I can't answer that. I don't Mm. know Mm. what it feels like to write in this moment, now that everything is slightly different. But um, the the words was written um, before I could fathom the space. Mm -hmm. 
They have an unflinching quality to them, which reminds me of Telemachus as the figure anyway. I, I, I love I love the way you fact him in, but also that 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 combination of extreme vulnerability and and intimacy with with the with the mother figure and also this waiting for dad and the, and the, and, the t- and the fact you turn the the eye of the book in, in, into multiple different eyes and that the father of the figure is multiple different eyes feels like the living breathing motion of the oral tradition passing from one tradition to another. It feels like translation alive on the page. You, you, you mentioned Merwin, and I've been reading Merwin almost religiously since the American election in, in that kind of way that you do read great American art to see where the America you love and believe in exists, you know, same as we might all be reading Virginia Woolf or whatever now, just to think that's an England I can buy into. Um, so we, we may as well, I think, talk about America. Yeah. Um, I read a thing with you somewhere where it said, what do you love? And you gave this great list of things that you love, including, you know, Perfume Genius and Etta, you know, a list of things. And I was like, oh, I love it. And then it said, what do, you, what do you hate? And you said, white supremacy. Growing up in the UK, naively, I thought white supremacy was uh, an extinct ideology. Certainly as a working, practical, political force, I thought it was discredited and dead. And I thought there were extremes in any kind of political system that would mean that these things would flare up, and I never thought they would come near to the center as they now have. How is it for you? How are you thinking about it? What kind of communities are you living in and working in? And what are you scared of? Well, um, the idea of white supremacy is very interesting because we, even in in the States, right, we have this notion that it exists only in the white hoods Mm. and the burning crosses um, and the hate crimes and swastikas. Um, but in fact, as James Baldwin has uh, reminded us, um, it is a systematic uh, framework that I think we're starting to understand that even white people are affected by and often destroyed by. And so we have uh, it in our interest as a species to dismantle it um, and then also to create something else, uh, first a remedy but also um, a method of thinking for our children in the future. And I know that sounds very grandiose, but um, I think the, the, the vital thing is that white supremacy is not located in a body, right? And I think that's where the conversation often gets shut down, right? You say, well, this is white, white supremacist thinking, and someone says, oh, no, 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 I'm not a white supremacist. No way, right? But it happens. It, it is like this cancer that happens to us. Mm-hmm. And now we have to interrogate how to heal and how to prevent it, how to be healthier in our thinking. And I go, I go back to Baldwin because he is very adamant about the not dividing the, 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 the thinking between whites and people of color in America, but that insisting that if the issue of race and racism is to be solved, it has to be solved in a place that was born out of slavery, mm-hmm. right? And also the genocide of Native Americans. Um, and, and I still, that's a project I think that is still worthwhile to me. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, um, I don't see the American lineage or the English lineage of writing as um, something I combat with. Um, for me, it is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I think of Whitman's project, um, as um, 
audacious, limited, and in many ways um, short-sighted as it was, I still think it's a worth it's a worthwhile experiment mm. that every writer should pick up, in the sense that to expand an American poetics in English that encompasses, mm -hmm. that uh, ruptures mm. um, divisions and creates something more whole and holistic. Mm. When he says, you know, um, do I contain multitudes very well? Then I contain multitudes. Mm. Um, you know, um, or rather, um, do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. Mm. Um, I contain multitudes. And I think I'm still working in that tradition mm. that he has uh, laid ground for us. And also in the, the Dickinsonian tradition. Here's a woman who has centuries of patriarchal lineage march right up to her door <laughs> and she says, no, thank you. I think it taught me so much about how, as a marginalized people, we have to carve out a space where we can say no to systems that fail in order to say yes to ourselves. Mm. Right? And that's what she did. Mm. And that's what you're doing, and it's so generative, and it's so inclusionary, and it's so, um, for want of a better word, uh, it's so soulful. Uh, it's like great music, and and it's such it's such a it's such a potent gesture now. And we might say we're living in a golden age in, in of poetry. I mean, I'm just a layman. I'm just someone that reads the books. But God, there are some incredible books, <laughs> even in the five minutes we had downstairs, yeah. saying, hey, have you read this? Hey, have you read yeah. this? Particularly yeah. when it comes, we were talking about Sol Mas's book, but the juxtaposition of, for example, military language right. and, and, and the, the language of, of romance or, right. or domesticity. Yeah. The, the, this is this energy which we're describing, and that feels like a that feels like a, a hand grenade of love to 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 do the same right. thing of military and yeah and, and your own work yeah, right? yeah, your yeah. own wonderful bada, 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 bada. no really really I think one of the stunning things I love about that book is that it's this act of innovation but also this this homage to lineage to write a book of poems in many ways and call it a novel is a way to to interrogate the uselessness and also the arbitrary spaces of label making, mm. right, and genre making. Because mm. if we go back to Homer, we see that it is, in a sense, a novel written in verse, mm -hmm. right, a novel that was carried. We go back to Milton, Chaucer, Dante. What were they but novels, right, yeah. full of characters and dialogue mm. and yet written in verse. And so that the idea of the innovation is perhaps going back now to what was most essential, mm -hmm. The, the, the rhythms and the rhymes simply helping us carry and memorize these large works, mm. right? And so mm. that if language, I think my grandma used to tell me this, you know, and she says, they can take everything from you, but never your stories, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you hold them. Your grandmother is wonderful. Mine was too, but her life advice was, a fuck is a fuck, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, I cherish. That's pretty useful. Uh, <laughs> Um, I want to. I, I want to finish um, on on this thing because we need to open this up to the audience. Again, somewhere in, in this is the problem these days, and, and this is what you're kind of talking about. I think is that the economic imperative, the way in which Ocean Wong needs to be packaged and sold, 
the way in which grief is a thing of pleasure needs to be packaged and sold, and even things that are meant to disrupt. And that disruption is not necessarily aggressive. That can be a loving disruption, like, like homage, like critical homage, or or wondering why influence itself has become a system that needs to be, needs some cautious approaching, or whether whether permission giving, whatever we were, you know, we we're talking about this. So I I wonder now, you know, how you feel about the dad and the I and the grandmother and the America and the Vietnamese and, and, and whether you think that there's a sense of you need to unlearn some of the things that being published has taught you, how you get back to that private space, whether you whether the conversation with yourself is as refined now as it was when you were on your own at 2am writing these poems in Brooklyn uh, and, and the work that needs to be done for you. How, are you feeling upbeat about it? Do you feel you need some time off? Can you do it now? Are you writing now? We talked, we talked about our notebooks downstairs and how that works. Will you give us a tiny bit of insight into yeah. How you work? Yes. Um, well, uh, I never imagined this sort of reception for the book. I just wanted, you know, when they asked me, when I wrote, had the book, they, and the publisher asked me, I told you, they said, um, well, you got to have a, an author photo. And I didn't want one because I was just, I don't know, I just didn't like the idea. But I ended up having one because I knew that my mother, who can't read, will have the book under her desk. She's a nail manicurist, so she works in nail salons, and she always shows it off to her clients, you know, and she's always pointing to my face. So I knew that would happen. Her regulars must be so <laughs> bored of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you showed me. Yeah. Do the nail. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so I think it was very practical for me. But I knew that regardless of what the perception, I wanted to, re- to remove myself from the work. After it's finished, you know, I thought I was just building this little raft that I get to send downstream. And I I don't want to be on it. I can't build another raft on the raft without dismantling it. So I wanted to stay on shore. And um, I think I made that peace with it. I said, go. I wanted to turn my back on the book in a way. Not that I don't love it. I'm proud of it. But I can't do anything else on it. You know, and so it's this other thing now. Yeah. I think that's the beautiful thing about publishing, is you're creating your personal town square, and now people get to be in it and do whatever they want. Right? The poem, in a sense, is just the space that you move through, and I'm I'm just glad I was able to make it. Well, and likewise, when you read a poem, that poem has gone into a hundred people's heads tonight, and will live in different ways—ways ways that you could never have envisaged when you were writing it. And that is grace, and, and, and that's a miracle. And it's been an incredible honor to, to have your little miracle delivered here in London. We really needed it. Thank you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. We need it. So um, where's your roving mic? Let's have it. Please ask Ocean some questions. No one. Can you read us another poem then, Ocean? Yeah, that'll do. That was wonderful. Um, Do I get to choose it? If you like. Yeah, <laughs> so selfish. No, read whatever you want. Those of you that have read this book, I'd advise you to read it again uh, out loud. It's a totally different book when you read it out loud. Um, I'll read this one. This was in uh, The Observer was so kind to run it uh, yesterday. Um, it's titled After a Mark Rothko Painting. And um, it's a sort of this strange meditation on 9-11. And I think for me, um, 
9-11 became this, this space where the intersections of being growing up queer and growing up um, in this era, so many of my friends um, are marked by this event, this uh, catastrophe, um, where, of course, um, people jumped from the buildings. You know? And so I think a lot of my friends, who, queer friends who, who lost their lives from suicide, they became this sort of tangled intersection and of course, Mark Rodko, uh, a Jewish-Russian immigrant uh, and a great artist, took his own life in New York City. Untitled, blue, green, and brown, oil on canvas. Mark Rodko, 1952. The TV said the planes have hit the buildings. And I said yes, because you asked me to stay. Maybe we pray on our knees because God only listens when we're this close to the devil. There's so much I want to tell you. How my greatest accolade was to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and not think of flight. How we live like water, wetting a new tongue with no telling what we've been through. They say the sky is blue, but I know it's black, seen through too much distance. You will always remember what you were doing when it hurts the most. There is so much I need to tell you, but I only earned one life and I took nothing nothing like a pair of teeth at the end the TV kept saying the planes the planes and I stood waiting in a room made of broken mockingbirds their wings throbbing into four blurred walls and you were there you were the window. I have one question. Um, I always, because um, I'm an idiot, I, I ask writers a simple would you rather question. Do you know, do you play that would you rather? Like, would you rather sleep in a bed of nettles or, yeah. you know, drink cactus yeah. spikes? <laughs> yeah. That's actually very good. Um, so the question is, would you rather be able to fly but only at 10 miles an hour or be able to run 100 miles per hour? Fly slowly. Mm. Yeah. Me too. I really like the idea of just moving slowly across the land. Yeah. Seeing everybody. Well, Ocean, it's been an absolute honour to hear you. Just to check no one's had a, a spirit d'escalier question. Yay! I'm afraid it isn't properly formulated into a question, but um, could you talk a little bit about the difference between poetry that's read aloud and that you read? Um, I don't know if there is a difference 
as much as an expansion. Um, for myself, I was um, I grew up in Hartford, and it, it's a black and brown community. And a lot of my friends' parents used to listen to Motown, and I would listen to Etta James, and um, you know um, Marvin Gaye, and the way they paused and the way they warped and inflected their words created new meaning to me. Um, and I think when I'm reciting the poem, it becomes um, like a second page. The air becomes a second page where I get to pressurize the syntax differently than I would have on the page. So it's just another opportunity and therefore an expansion of the innovations um, that are limited by the text but then are offered new uh, by the voice. You know? And I think Motown was so vital because a lot of the lyrics were elongated and emotion exists potently in those spaces. And I think of a song like Sam Cooke's, you know, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. You know. I was born by the river in a little tent and just like the river I've been running ever since it's been a long long time coming but I know change gonna come oh yes it will Sorry, I just got took over. Um, no, no, no. no. Um, um, but when I when I heard that song, you know, um, I was born. You know, it's just it's one word. Everything was in one word. How did that happen? What kind of technology hmm. made that happen? And it was the voice, right? It was a technology I already possessed. And, you know, how can you turn back after that? <laughs> oh, man. There is a question back there. <clears throat> Hi. Um, brown, Asian-American voice. Um, Going off what you said about Etta James and growing up in Hartford, which was black and brown, I'm interested in sort of how you talked about the Asian American experience sort of as almost as this challenge to white supremacy, but I'm interested in how you see it relating to other minority experiences because it is, although it has many similarities in how it's contested, obviously, it's very different than the black American experience, which is very different than the brown American other types of brown American experiences? Um, I think it's very important to not uh, homogenize um, these differences. Um, and I think the danger of, of um, the danger and also the urgency of white supremacy is that it takes up the space. It becomes this emergency that we have to tend to right away. And in that emergency, 
we sometimes don't have space or room to talk about racism within Asian American communities, um, hierarchical um, structures within Asian Americans from one another, um, Caribbean Americans from one another, Latin Americans, right? All of those intricacies exist. And perhaps my naive faith is that the poem is a space where that can be accessed um, and specifically tended to without having to check up check off all the boxes that sometimes we have to as social bodies moving through social spaces. Um, and in that sense, uh, I go back to that Merwin quote, right? So writing uh, as yourself, Asian American, brown, you can't be anything else except more than that, right? And so when I think of poetry and literature, I don't think of, is it enough uh, or, or how can I reach enoughness? How can I be adequate? But rather, how can I be more? Right? I think of expansion uh, as opposed to limitation. Um, and so I don't know if that's an answer, but it's a, a, an awareness, I think, that, um, yes, there are these structures, and particularly in this Trump era where the white supremacy becomes first, it, it, it selfishly takes up our energy, and we do have to tend to it's this fire Right. So before we, 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 we talk about how we should live as neighbors, we should first put out the fire. Right. And, and I think that's what I'm interested in um, now without forsaking um, all the complications um, involved in, in being an Asian American body in relation to other black and brown people. Does that involve restoring some nuance to, to the linguistic terrain or, 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 of racism or victimization, whatever it is, but being more exacting with your language, it's care of language, because at the moment, difference is being simplified. Yes. It's being stripped of all its complexity right. to be right. made, as it were, one, one enemy, one problem, one 140-line right. one tweet against that. Yes. Um, and and Sim- it becomes simpl- simplified, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think um, the more words we have to describe our feelings, the better. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I think um, there's also a danger in policing or over-policing language, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of my students, you know, I teach at NYU, and they're reading each other's work, and they're reading these very political work. And I, I learned as a teacher that a lot of uh, the difficulty is language itself, or sometimes they just don't have the language. They don't mean, you know, a certain thing. Like, we, I had a student, um, you know, a Muslim-American student um, who was writing, and, uh, you know, a, a, a white classmate had this offhand moment where he said, um, oh, well, you know, since you're not American, this must be very difficult for you, et cetera, right? And when we followed that space, it wasn't that he was... Um, malicious or even mm-hmm. othering her, but that he just didn't know that there was something else that you can say Muslim American, mm-hmm. that the word American could be expanded. Mm-hmm. And so in office hours, he was so torn, right? And he said, I don't know why I failed. It was, well, you know, think of language. Let's, let's, let's look at a language that can encompass this. And I think oftentimes it's a matter of vocabulary that stunts us and that, and sometimes this uh, sensitivity uh, and the policing of language happens so fast, so rapid, and so total that we miss, we actually miss sight of one another, miss sight of one's intentions, right? Um, and, and the lovely space in that class was that 
because it's so intimate, because the students were looking at each other's work for many weeks and they cared for one another beyond their labels that, that society has put on them, they were very forgiving yeah. of him. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, oh, well, okay, you know, and he backpedaled and we actually helped each other mm. find a better language mm. um, to, to, to talk about it. Well, to be slipped into the suggestion box of Donald Trump, I mean, that's what you're suggesting is that we need to create space and time for slow thinking and care and attention to detail when we use the, this most precious, this most precious gift. Um, amen to that. Yeah. Um, Thank you. We, we've run out of time, or is, is, if anyone has another question, we should. We should. Thank you. One more. There's one there. Okay, Let's one more. Last question. This is just a little, it was a quick question, I think. Did you choose the cover of this, of this book? And if so, how did you come to choose this cover? Um, yes, I did. Um, it's a cover, uh, it's a photo of uh, me, my mother, and my aunt. And uh, we, it was not my first choice. I, you know, I, I just let the editors and the designers um, go about it, but... Um, we had trouble getting rights for things, and it was sort of like this very bureaucratic, um, you know, mess. And finally I said, you know, I just want Asian bodies to be first and foremost present. And I think that was, that was a simple answer. Yeah. Buy the book. Read it many times. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.